Well, good morning, Grace and Peace Hill Church. It is good to see you all. I am grateful to be here. This is a special church for me and my wife, a special pulpit, and it is a blessing to look out and to see uh, so many familiar faces, people whom I love, and uh, so many new faces. Uh, that's a blessing and a joy as well. Uh, today we'll look at Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 32. Matthew 14, verses 22 through 32. Uh, the title for this sermon will be The Son of God and the Storm. Uh, the Son of God and the Storm. Matthew 14, verses 22 through 32. And when you get there, uh, please join me in a word of prayer. We ask the Lord for help. Father, we pray to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, your Son. Father, Jesus is our only hope. He is all we have. We thank you for a good shepherd in Christ. We thank you for an interceding high priest in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the love you displayed and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that in Christ we have a sure and steady anchor for our souls. And we thank you that Christ is the mediator through which we draw near to you as we do right now. And we draw near, Lord, because we are needy. Needy in every way, but I thank you that in Christ we have a Savior sufficient for every single need. Who is enough through it all. The ups and downs of life, the trials and the tribulations, the hard times, the hardships. Lord, we look to Jesus now as we open up your word. And we admit our neediness and dependence and ask for the Spirit to be at work through your word. May the Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts and minds that we may understand your truth. We need help, Lord, in the preaching of your word, the hearing of your word, the applying of your word. We need Lord, in greater measure, eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts, living hearts to believe and to trust and to persevere and to cling to Christ. I pray, Lord, for this body. I pray, Lord, for this time. May you exalt your Son by your Spirit through your Word and glorify your name. In the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Matthew 14, verses 22 through 32. God's word reads, Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. 
And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So reads the word of the living God. Nearly a century ago in this country was the dark days of the Great Depression, uh, the storm of intense poverty and collateral damage, suffering, terrorized everyone. Uh, There was a young pastor in a rural black church in Louisiana serving a herding congregation where electricity was still growing in widespread access. The church had just one little light bulb hanging from the middle of the sanctuary to light up the whole sanctuary. He was preaching away when in the middle of his sermon, the light went out. And the sanctuary was now pitch black. And being a young preacher, he didn't know what to do or to say. He stumbled around ceasing to preach when one of the church deacons said, Preach on, preacher. We can still see Jesus in the dark. That's a good word. My brothers and sisters, the glory of Christ shines in the preaching of the gospel, even within a dark room. But likewise, in the darkest storms of life and suffering and sorrow and grief, the glory of Jesus does not cease to shine. And with eyes of faith, we ought to see Jesus through the storms of darkness and not only see him, but trust in him, clinging to his unchanging goodness, promises, and the hope of glory we find in Christ alone. Church, we have been born outside of the paradise of Eden into a fallen, sinful, and suffering world. But by the grace of God, we Christians have been born again to believe in Jesus. And adversity, suffering, trials in life while following Jesus are opportunities to grow in trusting Jesus, leaning on him throughout the storms. It's been said You're either in a storm, heading to a storm, or coming out of a storm. And the text before us speaks to these realities and teaches us what the disciples learned about the Son of God within a literal storm of darkness. Matthew 14, verses 22 through 32, showcases how the trials of life Reveal to us the greater glory of Christ, deepening our worship, trust, and obedience. This text showcases how the storms of life show forth the greater glory of Christ, deepening our worship, trust, and obedience. And my prayer is that 
you would find comfort and confidence in Christ, the Son of God, for the storms that are raging in your life right now, that are coming or that will come. And that you would worship, trust, and obey Him even through the trial of storms. We'll look at this text from two headings, both from the disciples' perspective. The first one being verses 22 through 27, struggling through the storm. Verses 22 through 27, struggling through the storm. Look with me to verse 22. It says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. The first word Matthew gives us here is immediately. And it speaks to the urgency and intensity of Jesus in this situation, which calls for a more full context. Uh, By Matthew 14, the gospel narrative of Matthew is deep within the ministry of Jesus, where he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of God arriving because because the king is here. He's calling for his disciples to follow him as he sets forth himself as the Savior King. And what we see throughout the gospel is that there's primarily three groups. The enemies of Jesus, primarily the Jewish leadership of Pharisees and Sadducees. The crowds, these were fans of Jesus but not followers of Jesus. They wanted the benefits of Jesus without real discipleship and allegiance to Jesus. They wanted the hype but didn't want to give him their heart. Give him their heart. They wanted Jesus to feed their greeds rather than meet their deepest eternal need. There is the enemies of Jesus, the crowds, and then the disciples. Those who trust and follow Jesus as their loving Lord and Savior. And truth be told, more than likely those three groups are here in this room as well. Enemies of Jesus... People who are just in the crowd and disciples of the Lord Jesus. And it's helpful to think, where are you? Who is Jesus for real in your life? He ought to be your all in all. He wills to be. But the context of Matthew 14, deep within the ministry of Jesus, persecution and opposition is rising up. In the beginning of this chapter, we see John the Baptist is killed because of his preaching. And Jesus, within verse 13, wanted a moment alone, most likely to mourn the death of his cousin. But the crowds come to Jesus, and in his great love, he has compassion upon them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And then we see the miracle, the only miracle besides the resurrection mentioned in all four Gospels. The feeding of the 5,000. And really, when it says 5,000, it's only 5,000 men. It's probably fifteen to 20,000 when you think about the women, their wives, and their children. So this phenomenal miracle where Jesus, with a little boy's lunch, feeds thousands upon thousands of people. In John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, speaking of this miracle, says the people wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king. And this is around Passover where the Jews celebrated the exodus, where the angel of death passed over Israel, killing the Egyptians, and then they crossed the Red Sea, and they were delivered, redeemed from slavery. The crowd was aggressively motivated for Jesus to become their king, to deliver them from Rome, 
not really from sin. They were thinking very earthly terms. The crowd was aggressively motivated. And think about the disciples. They had to be excited. They left everything to follow Jesus. Jesus told them to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done to the Father. And now they're thinking, Jesus, this is what they want. Let's make this happen. But they also had to be thinking, if Jesus ascends to his kingship, that puts me in a really good place. They're probably thinking of their own glory and their place in his kingdom. But we see the urgency and intensity of this verse, him making the disciples go into the boat, boat, dismissing the crowds because there would not be a kingdom without the cross. That was the very thing that Satan tempted Jesus with in Matthew 4. Because the Son of God was sent by the Father to be the crucified and risen King. There will be no kingdom without a redeemed people through the cross. The excitement of people cannot overtake God's plan. So verse 22 tells us that Jesus immediately made the disciples get into the boat to go to the other side. This word made speaks to Jesus strongly urging them and even pressing them into the boat. In the dismissing the crowds, he's causing them to leave. It's, not, it's active action. It's not like a passive request. And the disciples were most likely reluctant to leave because they wanted the kingdom immediately. And they just had a long day feeding thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people as Jesus multiplied this food. And because of what happens next, it was probably bad weather and an oncoming storm. And Jesus is telling them to go into the boat to cross the sea. But we know Jesus always knows what he's doing with perfect wisdom and sovereignty, as he still does today in all of our lives. So look with me to verse 23. It says, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. And we'll pause there. We can ask the question, why and what did Jesus pray? Well, Matthew doesn't exactly say, but the prayer of Jesus we do have in Scripture in John 17 may gives, a, gives us some insight into Jesus' prayer life. John 17:1 shows us very clearly that Jesus is prayers were heartfelt communion and communication with God the Father, with his Father. In John 17, 4, Jesus prayed about accomplishing what the Father sent him to do, accomplishing redemption by way of the cross, which is very timely considering what Jesus is separating himself from here. His current circumstance displayed that Jesus has a holy zeal towards accomplishing exactly what the Father sent him to do. Accomplishing through the cross redemption that there may be a redeemed people in the everlasting kingdom. But also as he did in John 17, 9 and John 17, 20 and Luke 22, verse 32. And as Jesus does now, Jesus' prayer life as the true and final high priest involved prayer for his disciples. His eagerly influenced, misguided disciples. His soon-to-be-entering-a-horrible-storm disciples. The disciples were sent before him when they didn't understand. The disciples often failed 
But the disciples were never unprayed for by Jesus. And neither are you, struggling disciple here today. He always lives to intercede for those who have drawn near to him. We have a mediator and representative in heaven. I was with, I was with my dad the other day in the hospital and a pastor from my parents' church, the church I grew up at, uh, just came to visit him and prayed for him. And as the pastor left, my dad tearfully said, how much of a blessing it is just for someone to pray for you. Especially within the storms of life. And there is real comfort and joy in that. But there's supreme comfort and joy to know that our Savior is always praying and interceding for his own. Christ in his life as the God-man, the perfect man, prayed. And Christ as the resurrected, ascended Savior still intercedes and prays for his own. Look with me to verse 24. Jesus is praying on the mountain. It's late. He's there alone. But verse 24, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. John chapter 6 verse 19 tells us a long way from the land means three to four miles away. They had made some distance. And it wasn't necessarily because of their strength or just skill in the skill in progressing in the boat. It was the wind and the waves and the storm. This wasn't the nursery rhyme experience of row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, merrily, life is but a dream. They were beaten by the waves. And, and recently a boat found back from this time in the type of context that we're reading of here, it, it, it could hold 15 men. It was 26 feet long. A boat like that, because the disciples, there were, there were 12, 12 of them beaten by the waves. This is a serious storm. It's not just a little drizzle. They were beaten by the waves, and the waves were causing them deep distress, is what that word beaten communicates. They were harassed and tormented by the waves. That word is also used in the original language and throughout the New Testament with people tormented by a disease. And the text says that the wind was against them, opposing their destination and goal, taking them deeper to the middle of the lake and into the storm. Quite literally, they were in a dark storm. And they were in this storm in their lives without their leader. Matthew 8, previously in following Jesus in the ministry, they've seen Jesus be asleep in a storm, wake up and say, peace be still. But now sent by him, they were in this storm seemingly without him. Commentators have noted they had to be confused, frustrated, disillusioned, and disappointed. Jesus sent them away and now they're in this storm. Put yourself in their sandals. Think about their life. They've left everything, their family, their jobs, and they're just trying to be faithful. And a storm like this hits. Doesn't that sound familiar? It's by the grace of God, depending upon the Lord, just trying to be faithful and follow Jesus, and storms hit out of nowhere. 
Suffering doesn't ask for your permission to enter into your life. And what we can't miss is that the disciples were, yes, within this storm, but they were exactly where they were supposed to be. They were obeying Jesus. They were doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. They're not being punished. Jesus wasn't done with them on account of them being within the storm. They were struggling through the storm, but they were obeying their Lord. That's a good thing. Disciples trust and obey Jesus even when we don't understand. Even when it's hard and it, and, and it involves suffering. Because he is a good and loving Lord and King. And like a good coach sometimes allows their players to go through some hard workouts for their own growth. And so they can come together as a team and understand what they're moving towards and just grow a little more. Jesus is permitting them to be in this storm and they are obeying him by being in it. Suffering in life doesn't always indicate some sin has made this happen, or God is punishing you, or he's through with you, and he's forsaken you. See it right here, the disciples being amidst this storm, harassed and tormented, are in a place of obedience. There was a post, such a 2022 thing to say. There was a social media post I seen not too long ago. Um, and it was like five Christian cliches that need to stop. And one of them was, um, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. That is true eternally and relationally with God. But circumstantially, it's not always the case. The Apostle Paul, when he was eventually martyred, was in the will of God. Peter, when he was martyred, all the apostles besides John in their martyrship, they were in the center of the will of God. The Lord Jesus himself, when he laid his life down upon that cross, was in the center of the will of God. And it wasn't comfortable. And it looked like suffering within this fallen and wicked world. But the disciples here are in a place of obedience. The standard for our obedience to the Lord Jesus is not everything making sense to us. We have to trust him and lean not to our own understanding. We have to believe in his love for us and live out of love for him. There's an interesting psalm. It's 107 verses 23 through 32. It's really a conceptual parallel of what we see happening here. Psalm 107 verse 23, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. It says, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. In Psalm 107, it's the first psalm of book five of the Psalms, and it's all about God's providence, how different people are in different places, but God remains sovereign in the details of their life, showing his love and bringing about his glory. And what we see in verse 23 of Psalm 107 is it's these people just living life. 
they're in the sea and ships and they're doing business. Verse 24, they saw the deeds of the Lord and his wondrous works in the deep. They've seen God do great things. But then verse 25 says, For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. God commanded and brought about a storm out of nowhere. Verse 26, they mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their trial. Uh, These brothers are coming to the end of themselves, this text is saying. Verse 27, they reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wit's end. It doesn't mean they were sinfully drunk. What it means is this storm was tossing them around like a tsunami. And they were at the end of themselves. They had no more wisdom or self-sufficiency of figuring this out or getting out of their storm. Nothing they could do would save themselves. They had to look beyond themselves to the Lord. But verse 28, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. And that is the repeated refrain throughout this psalm. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Verse 29, and it's a picture of what's to come in the text we're focused on. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. In the original, it's literally the city of joy. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. In the providence of God, they encountered a storm, came to the end of themselves, cried out to the Lord, and seen his steadfast love seen his wondrous works in their life, and it brought about a deeper worship amongst the people of God in their lives that wasn't there before. Looking back to Matthew 14, verse 25, the narrative continues and says, And when the disciples saw, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. The fourth watch of the night means it was 3 a.m. So if he sent the disciples away around the evening time and it's 3 a.m., think about how long they have been fighting in this storm, in in the waves and against the wind. It's been a long time. But what that tells us is that Jesus didn't rush his prayers. He left the mountain at 3 a.m. and the disciples were emotionally a mess and probably tired as ever. But look at how Jesus came. Walking on the sea. Like you walked into this room, Jesus was walking upon the sea. And this is multiple miles. This is both a miracle and a sign that Jesus is God. The God-man, the fullness of deity in bodily form. But not only that. As John MacArthur said, Jesus used their trial as his footpath. The primary means of their trial was the primary means Jesus used to display his glory to them. The storm was an opportunity for Jesus to showcase his greater glory over the storm, the wind and the waves. 
And likewise, the suffering storms of our life, when met with faith, provide lenses to see just how great Christ is. Just how faithful are His promises. How real the hope in Him we have and how it endures in and through it all. How His peace really surpasses all understanding. And how He can carry you when you have nothing left. And draws near to you in the times of your greatest hurt, distress, and pain. See our Savior in this text within this storm displaying His power, His authority, and His greater glory. And His willingness to draw near to His struggling disciples. With compassion and sovereignty, Jesus is not repulsed by their struggle, but drawn to them. Moving toward them with an unwavering love greater than the unrelenting waves. Then and now, both the storms and the disciples are in the hands of Jesus. Our trials teach us about how human and how needy we are, but how gloriously sufficient and faithful He is. Our trials teach us to see our Savior through the storm. Look with me to verse 26. It says, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Understandably so, the disciples are terrified and tired, unsettled and confused. And you may chuckle, like, they thought it was a ghost. This is Jesus walking on water, but when's the last time you've seen someone walking on water at 3 a.m.? In the middle of a raging storm. But it does show us how our minds in times of fear often go to the worst case scenario. They said it's a ghost and they screamed. And that word here doesn't just get at some casual scream. But it's elsewhere used in the New Testament for the deeply disturbed. For epileptics or for the demon possessed. I mean this was a scream that would make you get goosebumps. They were struggling in the storm, and from their perspective, seeing this, the storm is getting worse. But in verse 27, it says, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus understood their frailty and spoke to quiet their fears. And he commanded them to take heart, Comforting words which mean to have courage. Why should they take heart? Because Jesus says, it is I. Which can literally be translated, I am. I am here. I am with you. Have no fear. Jesus wasn't walking on the water to show all his disciples that they can and will do it too. But to display his glory. Not only as God, but with his willingness and how able he is to save his own. To rescue, to draw near to his own, no matter what the storm we find ourselves in. There is no storm so horrible the Son of God cannot reach and rescue his own. 
There is no fear so strong that it will undo his promise never to leave or to forsake us. They may have been struggling through the storm, but it was precisely there where Christ met them in all his glory. The storm set the stage for Christ to show up and show out. And just some life application, considering verses 20 through 27, I want to encourage you to trust Jesus through your suffering. Suffering is real, it is coming, and it will be a part of your life at some point. But trust Jesus through your suffering. He is altogether trustworthy. He is holy, the holy son of God. He cannot lie, and he will never sin against you, do you wrong, or pull the rug from up under you. He is faithful and true. If he is trustworthy eternally pertaining to your sin before the living God, he is trustworthy pertaining to the worst circumstances and suffering that we have to endure through in this fallen world. My brother and sister, do not trust your gut. Do not trust your emotions or your doubts. Trust and rely on Christ. He is ever reliable and faithful. And this trusting in Christ through suffering does not mean denying reality. Faith and hurt and tears are not to be separated as if they both can exist in the same soul. It is not non-Christian to really feel it. To really feel the emotion, the hurt and the grief of whatever's going on. Of, whatever, of wherever providence has, has you. It is not wrong to have tearful eyes but a trusting heart. It is not wrong to have a heavy heart but one filled with hope at the same time. It's okay to be real and to really trust Him through it. Trusting Jesus through suffering looks like holding on to His promises. He spoke to Mary and Martha when Lazarus died, said, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And we ought to ask ourselves those questions in the face of suffering. Do we believe this book? Trusting Jesus through suffering looks like persisting in obedience. Remember, the disciples were in a place of obedience going through this storm. They weren't being punished or far from God, separated from God, or anything like that. That's not what we see here, at least. Persistent obedience. Trust the Lord even through the hard times and obey His Word. His Word is for our good. And we ought not to forsake His commandments, His good and kind commandments, to guide us and to keep us when life gets hard. But also I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to let the church bear the burden with you. Some of you in this room may say it's hard for you to let other people bear the burdens because you feel like you are putting a burden on them. But Scripture says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. At a certain point, that screams of self-sufficiency and a sense of independence or a lack of desire to let the church be the church in your life. We need each other through the suffering. 
We need our brothers and sisters in Christ as we persist and look to our God. We have to love one another by being there for one another and being real and honest with one another when life just gets hard because it does and it will. You need the brothers and sisters in this room to love you, to pray for you, to rally around you, to hold you up when you feel like you can't walk. We need each other. And the last thing, trusting Jesus through suffering, it's certainly prayer. Samuel Rutherford, who knew a fair share of suffering, losing a wife and eight kids, said, send a heavy heart up to Christ and it shall be welcome. We ought to pray to the Lord through our suffering. And there's been times in my life where in hard moments of suffering and pain or grief, the only prayer I can utter is Jesus That's it. But he hears it. And he knows what's going on. And he is with you and for you. In those moments where you don't have a lot of words that can flow from your heart, he knows your heart and all that you're going through. Learn to see your Savior in the suffering. Fear. or Learn to see your Savior in the deepest fears. He draws near to suffering saints because He is the suffering servant. Scripture speaks of Him as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He sympathizes with your weaknesses and knows how to shepherd you in those times, in those seasons. And it's in those very moments that you see the greater depths of his glory. Because the trials are opportunities for you to see just how great he is and how willing and able he is for you. Relationships just deepen through suffering and hard times, whether it's sports teams, family, friends, marriages, whatever it is, when you go through a little something, the relationship is just different altogether from there. And it's the same with the Lord Jesus, and he shows himself time and time again to be faithful. His text showcases for us how the trials of life reveal to us the greater glories of Christ. We've seen struggling through the storm. Let's look at verses 28 through 32 now, savoring the Son of God who is greater. Struggling through the storm and savoring the Son of God who is greater. Verse 28 says, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Here goes Peter again, right? But when he says, Lord, if it is you, That does not indicate a request of suspicion, but a response of excitement. And this wasn't carnal excitement for just a supernatural experience, but eagerness to be with Jesus. That's who disciples are and what we do. We are those who are with Jesus, learn from Jesus, become like Jesus, and love Jesus. Peter wasn't just a spiritual thrill seeker here, but seeking Jesus. Peter was often brash, 
impulsive and spoke what, his, spoke what was on his mind without thinking. But he was a fisherman. He understood the dangers of these waters, but he also realized it was safer to be with Jesus on the water in the storm than in the boat without him. And throughout the Gospels, Peter's laughable and sad moments are often reflections of his affection for Jesus. At the transfiguration on the mountain where the glory of Christ shines in an unparalleled way, and then Peter speaks and says, should we get tents for you, Moses and Elijah? It's just kind of out of place and inappropriate. It just was not the time to talk. But he was communicating a desire to be there and to stay there and to continually behold the great glory of Christ, he was saying. Peter, when he told Jesus not to wash his feet because he's so unworthy, he was saying, I am unworthy. This is slave work. I should be washing your feet. Not understanding that Jesus was using it as a metaphor for how he serves us and he'll cleanse us from all our sins. But once Jesus corrected him, he said, well, not my feet, but my head too. And my whole body. Even Peter's denials, his three denials, when Jesus was arrested and being turned over to be crucified. He denied Jesus three times. But how, many but how many disciples were that close to Jesus then? They're all. His failures often show there is deep affection there for Jesus. And in John 21, Peter basically tells Jesus, I love you in no wise a perfect way, but in a real way. And don't you know that to be true, Christian? A love for Jesus that's real, but far from perfect. It's what we see from our brother in Christ, Peter, time after time. And here in verse 28, he says, In faith, Jesus, bring me near to you. In verse 29, Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus Jesus honors Peter's request here, and what this tells us is that Jesus does not reject weak faith, but accepts and builds upon it. There were 11 other disciples in the boat, and none of them asked for this. Peter had some faith and wanted to be near Jesus and then actually walked on water. This is a miracle. He would always be able to say that. It would be an amazing two, two truths and a lie fact. I walked on water. Everybody will say that's the lie. It's actually true for Peter and Jesus. He took a few steps on the water. But even then, look at verse 29. It doesn't end with that. Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. Even his walking on water was Christward and all about Christ. Look with me to verse 30. It says, but when he, speaking of Peter, saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. This is where the story may get familiar. Peter took his eyes off Christ. He saw the wind. He perceived and was becoming aware of what's really happening, probably asking himself, am I really walking on water? With this waves and wind, what is happening right now? I mean, this, 
he was in like a like serious thought. But his focus ended up feeding his fear as he looked at the winds and the waves. And in the storms and trials of life following Jesus, your focus will either feed your fears or your faith. Peter fed his fears and instantly began to sink with the fear of death. And he cried every disciple's simple prayer, Lord, save me. But look with me to verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I love that word. Jesus immediately reached out his hand. This was an opportunity to really see the heart of Jesus. Was he an umpire? That was just going to call Peter out? Or was he a lifeguard that saves? Jesus immediately reached out his hand answering this cry of Peter to save him. He didn't punish, he didn't argue, he didn't scold, he didn't accuse, he didn't rebuke Peter for some drowning lesson. He reached out his hand and took hold of him. Jesus saved Peter because Jesus is a savior. That is who he is, full of grace upon grace, rich mercy and redeeming love. And when for the first time you really grasped the majestic purity and holiness of God, that you are a creature and he is your creator, and that you have broken his law, that in and of ourselves we are lawbreakers and sinners, and the just wages of sin is death by way of the holy wrath of God. But then you heard of the good news of Jesus, that the Father sent his Son in the likeness of of our flesh, born of a woman, born under the law. And Jesus fulfilled the law in our place. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. And Jesus, in His great love, and His infinite free grace, laid His life down on the cross and died for the sins of those who will all believe in Him, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, suffering once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He would bring us to God. And then on the third day, as he said, he rose again in victory over sin and death, completely vindicating the truth that he is the Son of God and the only Savior of the world, and whoever repents of their sin and believes in him shall be saved. And you heard the good news of that gospel. You were drowning, dead in your sins in and of yourselves, but then by the grace of God you cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Christ Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of our very hearts and souls and saved us. And we rested in his salvation. And we still rest in his love and and, in his forgiveness. And we embrace his transforming grace and his promises to never cast us away. And even after that, Christian, time and time again, don't you pray a prayer like this? Lord, help me, change me, forgive me, heal me, comfort me, assure me again of your gospel, keep me. We know what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear, what a privilege to carry everything to Christ in prayer. We pray to Jesus because when we were sinking, we know to whom shall we go. He has the words of eternal life. 
And we know he is willing and able to save us to the uttermost, full of grace and mercy. And if you are here today and do not know this Savior, see that you are worse than Peter in this situation, dead in your sins and trespasses, at the bottom of the ocean of impurity and lawlessness. But Christ, Jesus, has come to save sinners. And he will abundantly pardon and forgive you if you repent of your sins, meaning turn from your sin and turn to Jesus in faith. Receive and rest upon him. Trust in his finished work and entrust your very soul to him. And he will save you, forgive you, and keep you. And one day your faith will become sight. You will see Jesus face to face and be transformed into his same image and eternally live forever in joy and glory. That is the good news of the gospel, and it's a free offer. Come to Christ today. There's no reason to turn away. There's no, we- There's no reason to say, not now. Today is the day of salvation, and Christ, through his word, by his spirit, is bidding you to come, and he will immediately save you, just as he did Peter here in this text. In verse 31, Jesus says, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Little faith is, isn't no faith, but little faith is not enough considering how great Jesus is. Peter had enough faith to trust Jesus getting out of the water, but not enough faith to stay there. He had little faith, and we often have little faith. But little faith is always because of a small focus on Jesus, the object, founder, and perfecter of our faith. Faith is, is only as good as its object, and there's no better object than Christ. Peter let the wind feed his fears over his faith as if the winds and waves were greater than Jesus, who walked through them like a garden. Little faith is not the goal, my brothers and sisters in Christ, because Christ is too great for small trust. But even little faith is still faith. We are not saved by the quality of our faith, but by the object of our faith in Jesus. What I'm trying to say is what Michael Reeves said, the struggling Christian is as much as a child of God is the greatest hero of the faith. If you are here today struggling in your faith, as you endure perhaps through a storm, struggle with Jesus, not against him. Seek and see him in the store through prayer, the word, and and other believers Doubt your doubts in the storm and trust Jesus who is greater. Don't you see in this text he's greater than the most literal worst storm you could even go through? He's also greater than your sins, your doubts, your fears, your failures, the disease, the diagnosis, the relational conflict, the loneliness, the worry and anxiety you may have to endure in death itself. Suffering will eventually reach its end, but Jesus remains forever. Suffering has a final chapter, but eternal life with Jesus is forever. That is why, in verse 31, Jesus asked Peter, why did you doubt? Some of you may read that and think, that is such an obvious and weird question. He doubted because of the wind and the waves and the storm. That's just critical thinking, perhaps, but it's too little thinking in the right direction. Jesus is saying to Peter in that question, amidst the storm, even with a mountain, Everest of reasons to doubt, Jesus still stands taller than that mountain. And he is with us and for us. Picture Peter in this moment, fixing his eyes and heart back on Jesus, who holds him securely, and all the doubts just begin to shrink away like a camera that's coming into focus. 
the winds and waves and storms were still there. But someone greater was present and captured his gaze now. Be encouraged that Jesus here doesn't do away with the doubting disciple, though. He draws near to us and helps us, fixing our eyes and our hearts back on him. Satan, the accuser, will whisper to you just the opposite and try to bring you to despair and unbelief. The only way, though, to make sense of any storm is Jesus. And that does not mean you'll have perfect understanding of the trial or that deliverance will look exactly how you want or come when you want. But it does mean when we cry out to Christ Jesus in faith, he remains faithful. He shows up and he is with us and for us. And God the Father remains the Father of mercies and the God of sovereign love. And God the Holy Spirit reminds us of Christ as our helper and comforter. He points us back to Christ in the hope of the gospel. The triune God is for you, believer, in your suffering. Look with me to our final verse in verse 32. It says, And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And then verse 33, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Along with the miracle of walking on the water, there's another miracle of the wind ceasing as soon as Jesus comes into the boat. Jesus knows what he's doing. Both the disciples and the storms are in his hands. And John 6:21 tells us not only did the wind cease, but they immediately arrived at their destination as soon as Jesus got into the boat. No matter what the trial looks like, Christian, or where the storm takes us, God will bring us where he wants us to be. Verse 33, these fearful, weak, tired, and doubting disciples, so much like us, end this storm with worship. They were struggling through the storm in obedience, but they were led to worshiping and savoring the Son of God who was greater. The storm was not meaningless. It was an opportunity for the glory of Christ to shine through their darkness and for the disciples to grow in faith. And within the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 3, God the Father says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. In chapter 8, verse 29, demons shudder in fear, proclaiming Christ to be the Son of God. But for the first time in this text before us, right here, the disciples on the heel of a storm confess for the first time, Truly, you are the Son of God. They seen Jesus was not merely a man, but the God-man. God in the flesh, the eternal begotten Son of God, the Spirit-anointed Son from the Father, sent to redeem and reconcile us to God, greater with more authority than the very winds and waves. He is the only one greater than the storm. By way of application, savor Jesus through the storm. Worship and treasure Him. Even amidst suffering, there's joy to be had. Joy to be had in the reliability and faithfulness of Jesus. Draw near to Christ in your suffering, in the times of doubt, hurt, and pain. And find joy in the fact that God is making you more like Christ through those times. James, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let the, and let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may become perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
God is conforming you and shaping you into the image of Christ through these very sufferings. Peter, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Bible doesn't tell us to rejoice in the suffering itself, the precise details of the suffering, but to rejoice knowing and trusting that God is using this suffering for a greater good. And I challenge you to endurance through the sufferings of life by looking to Jesus. There is only one way to endure. Laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, running with endurance the race set before you, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before us and set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility so that you don't grow weary or faint-hearted. Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3. The trials of life showcase the greater glory of Christ. In the beginning of this sermon, we heard the deacon's words, Preach on, preacher. We can still see Jesus in the dark. And the good news is that Jesus still sees us in the darkness of the storm. And he draws near not to only show us that he is greater, but that he's with us. So I close with the hymn of the old, with the hymn of old. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he lived below. Be still, my soul. When dearest friends depart and all is darkened in the veil of tears, then you will better know his love his, and his heart who comes to soothe your sorrows and your fears. Be still, my soul, your Jesus can repay from his own fullness all he takes away. Be still, my soul, the hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord, when disappointment and fear and grief are gone. Sorrow for God, love's purest joys are restored. Be still, my soul. When change and tears are past, all will be safe and blessed when we shall meet him at last. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time to worship. We thank you for the glory of Christ. We thank you that we are not alone in our suffering. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.